The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, 175 nations have agreed to craft a legally binding treaty to reel in the world's out-of-control plastic problem. Plus, remember that rocket booster no one is taking responsibility for? It's still hitting the moon on Friday. Here's what it might be able to tell us. And a Beetlejuice sequel might finally be happening, unless Batman thwarts him again. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. It's being compared to the Paris Agreement. UN member states representing 175 nations have agreed to begin negotiations on a global plastics treaty. The treaty would outline production, use, and disposal of plastics in an effort to reduce plastic pollution around the world. Quoting the New York Times, The sheer volume of plastics the world produces is difficult to comprehend. By one measure, the total amount ever produced is now greater than the weight of all land and marine animals combined. Only 9% has ever been recycled, the United Nations Environment Program estimates. Instead, the bulk is designed to be used just once. Recycling symbols are no guarantee of recyclability, after which it ends up in landfills, dumps, the natural environment, or is incinerated. Scientists say plastics cause harm throughout their life cycle, releasing toxic as well as planet-warming greenhouse gases during production, landfill, and incineration. Plastics, which are manufactured from fossil fuels, caused 4.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions in 2015, one recent study estimated, more than all the world's airplanes combined. End quote. This new treaty would be legally binding. The world leaders will have two more years to agree on the specifics, including which parts will be legally binding or not, and how it will all be funded, according to the BBC. And disagreements have already begun. India was pushing for actions to be solely volunteer. Japan had a competing resolution that focused more heavily on marine plastics. And the U.S. pushed for a reference to chemicals in plastic to be removed from the agreement. Despite that, delegates from those nations still spoke highly of the agreement, which includes mentions of plastic pollution's risk to human health, and formally recognized the role of waste pickers who work long, dangerous hours sorting plastics. Quoting again from the Times, Among other requisites, Wednesday's agreement specifies that the global treaty must address the full life cycle of plastics, from production to disposal, recycling, and reuse. Delegates said they hoped to model the treaty on the Paris Climate Accord, under which countries set binding targets but are able to meet those goals using a range of different policies. The treaty must also address packaging design to cut down on plastic use, improve recycling, and make technical and financial assistance available to developers. 
developing nations. According to Wednesday's agreement, it must also address microplastics, the tiny plastic debris created by the breakdown of plastics over time. Microplastics have been detected by scientists in deep ocean waters, shellfish, drinking water, and even falling rain. End quote. The treaty follows on the 2020 Basel Convention, in which 120 nations agreed to put limits on exports of plastic waste from poorer nations to wealthier nations, but there are reports of rampant violations of that convention, and the U.S. hasn't even signed on to it, which is kind of part of the overall concern here. You know, even though the BBC notes that WWF described this new plastics treaty as, quote, one of the world's most ambitious environmental actions since the 1989 Montreal Protocol which phased out ozone-depleting substances, end quote, these treaties and such only work when nations actually follow them. Even with it being legally binding, I'm skeptical it will achieve as much as it's already getting credit for. But hey, this is one case in which I would be very, very happy to be proven wrong. As I've mentioned a few times, there's a rocket booster that's going to crash into the moon this Friday, March 4th. We're not in danger, the moon will be fine, and we still don't know whose rocket it came from. At first, it was identified as coming from a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket that launched in 2015, and then experts revised their findings and said it was actually from China's Chang'e 5T1 that launched the year before. Both have denied the rocket came from them. But even if we don't know where it came from, we do know that it might be able to provide us with some interesting insights when it makes impact. University of Colorado Boulder planetary scientist Paul Hain outlined what we can expect in the conversation yesterday. He points out that while the moon with its many craters is kind of like a record of the solar system's history, it's actually tough to learn too much from those craters without knowing for certain or being able to have witnessed the projectile that caused the crater to begin with. This time, we'll get to see just that, or just about. It won't be the first time, though. Back in 2009, NASA intentionally slammed the Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, or LCROSS, into a crater in the moon's south pole. Hain was part of the LCROSS mission and explains that by analyzing the dust plume from the impact, they discovered a few hundred pounds of water ice that had been knocked free by the hit. But this crash coming up on Friday marks the first time that a human-made object will unintentionally collide with the moon. Quoting Hain, The rocket is expected to crash into the vast barren plain within the giant Hertzsprung crater just over the horizon on the far side of the moon from Earth. An instant after the rocket touches the lunar surface, a shock wave will travel up the length of the projectile at several miles per second. Within milliseconds, the back end of the rocket hole will be obliterated with bits of metal exploding in all directions. A twin shockwave will travel downward into the powdery top layer of the moon's surface called the regolith. The compression of the impact will heat up the dust and rocks and generate a white-hot flash that would be visible from space if there happened to be a craft in the area at the time. A cloud of vaporized rock and metal will expand from the impact point as dust and sand-sized particles are thrown skyward. Over the course of several minutes, the ejected material will rain back down to the surface around the now-smoldering crater. Virtually nothing will remain of the ill-fated rocket. End quote. 
Now, with L-Cross in 2009, it went to a crater that is permanently shadowed. This one on Friday will actually be in the light, but unfortunately still on the far side of the moon and therefore out of view for any Earth-based telescopes. We'll have to wait two weeks for NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter to orbit over the impact zone and snap some photos. From there, scientists will be able to calculate the orientation of the booster at the moment of impact based on the shape of the crater, and maybe even calculate the heat from the impact if the orbiter's infrared instrument is able to get a reading. Hain explains that all of this is extra significant considering the planned upcoming missions to the moon. Quote, Impacts and crater formation are a pervasive phenomenon in the solar system. Craters shatter and fragment planetary crusts, gradually forming the loose granular top layer common on most airless worlds. However, the overall physics of this process are poorly understood despite how common it is. Observing the upcoming rocket impact and resulting crater could help planetary scientists better interpret the data from the 2009 L-Cross experiment and produce better impact simulations. With a veritable phalanx of missions planned to visit the moon in the coming years, knowledge of lunar surface properties, especially the quantity and depth of buried ice, is in high demand. End quote. Three and a half decades later, we might finally be getting a sequel to Beetlejuice. Deadline reports that Brad Pitt's production company Plan B has taken it on and is in early development. There's no official confirmation yet of who's behind the script, who's directing, or if the lead actors will be returning, but a few outlets are saying that, reportedly, Winona Ryder will be back as goth girl Lydia Dietz and Michael Keaton will reprise his role as the titular Beetlejuice. Which does track with what we've heard in the past, because this is not some out-of-nowhere cash grab to hop on the reboot bandwagon. Original director Tim Burton and others have been trying to make a Beetlejuice sequel happen since 1990, literally my entire life. After the box office success of the first film, Burton recruited British playwright Jonathan Gems, who did some uncredited work with Burton on Batman and would later team up with him again on Mars Attacks, to pen a sequel for the ghoulish comedy called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Here's how Wicked Horror described the idea, quote, Burton wanted to combine the setting of a classic cheesy 60s beach movie with the gothic German expressionist flair he's known for. It was a juxtaposition of two things that shouldn't ever exist together that apparently enticed Burton's imagination. As ridiculous as this sounds, it's worth pointing out that this is basically the same exact thing that he did with Edward Scissorhands by combining German expressionism with picturesque Norman Rockwell suburbia. Keaton and Ryder both agreed to do the film on the condition that Burton direct. The plot would have been the Dietz family moving to Hawaii, where the patriarch planned to open a resort. Obviously, the chaotic Beetlejuice would follow closely behind, accidentally awakening an angry native spirit, and most importantly, the ghost with the most would also win the big third-act surf contest. End quote. Were this same concept to be used for the upcoming reboot, hopefully it would cool it a little on any cultural appropriation of Hawaiians, but Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian never got made because it was thwarted by superheroes at every turn. 
So first, Burton and Keaton got tied up with Batman Returns, and then, in 1996, Warner Brothers tried to get Kevin Smith to write the script, but Smith turned it down to work on Superman Lives. Superman Lives being the fateful Nick Cage as Superman film that never did see the light of day, and was also directed by Burton. It really looked like a sequel might finally happen in 2011 when Seth Graham Smith of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter fame wrote a full script and did a number of interviews talking about the sequel. He described the project as a priority for Tim Burton and something that Keaton had been wanting to do for 20 years, saying, quote, he'll talk to anybody about it who will listen. End quote. And while Graham Smith never revealed any details about the plot, like if Beetlejuice was still going to Hawaii or not, he did confirm that it would pick up in the present day instead of taking place back in 1988. He told Collider at the time, quote, This will be a true 26 or 27 years later sequel. What's great is that for Beetlejuice, time means nothing in the afterlife, but the world outside is a different story. End quote. Which is good news for the idea of Winona Ryder joining in. In 2013, she confirmed that she was on board for the Graham Smith sequel, saying she would only ever do a sequel if both Keaton and Burton were also on board because she cares about the movie so much. She told the Daily Beast in 2013, quote, I love Lydia so much. She was such a huge part of me. I would be really interested in what she's doing 27 years later. End quote. Over the next few years, Burton and Graham Smith also indicated in multiple interviews that the sequel was still on, but by 2019, Warner Brothers announced the project had been shelved. Did that have anything to do with Seth Graham Smith having to take time to co-write the Lego Batman movie? Okay, probably not, but I like this junk theory that Batman continues to be the reason that we don't have a Beetlejuice sequel, foiled at every turn. And given that a new Batman is coming out this week, it does not seem like a good time to be trying to mount a Beetlejuice sequel. Now, I don't know yet if this latest incarnation is the Seth Graham Smith version of the sequel, or perhaps Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, or if those two were always one and the same. And I'm also not trying to get my hopes up, given the long history of failures to launch on this project, but if Hollywood reporter Jeff Snyder can be believed, shooting is actually set to begin as early as this summer. Until we know more, if this has gotten you in a Beetlejuice mood, a few recommendations. Sci-Fi Wire put out a fun video essay a few years ago making the argument that the genie in Aladdin may have been inspired by Beetlejuice the Animated Series, which is worth a rewatch in itself if you are at all into late 80s, early 90s cartoons. Also, the Beetlejuice musical has reopened on Broadway and will be starting a national tour in September. And if you do happen to be in New York City anytime, there is a whole Tim Burton slash Halloween themed bar called Beetle House that I am happy to report seems to have weathered the pandemic. And I haven't actually been to it, but if you want to have a drink inside what I imagine Tim Burton's brain looks like, it's the place to be. Links to all of those are in the show notes, and keep your fingers crossed for this sequel to Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. So remember that kitsch device that was created to hack McDonald's milkshake machines so franchise owners could 
actually tell what was wrong with them and repair them themselves. If you're out of the loop or need a refresh, I will link to the November and April episodes of last year in which I outlined the whole saga. But here is the latest. Kitsch's co-founders, Melissa Nelson and Jeremy O'Sullivan, officially filed a legal complaint against McDonald's on Tuesday asking for... $900 million in damages. This is due to McDonald's sending out notices to franchise owners to make them stop using the devices, allegedly stealing a kitsch device to reverse engineer it and create their own product, and even more alleged underhanded dealings that effectively decimated kitsch's business. So $900 million is what they expect it would be valued at had McDonald's not intervened. The whole web of allegations here goes in so many directions that I am fully waiting for some news site to launch a podcast miniseries on it, or at least for Netflix to crank out a documentary on the topic. They'll call it McShakeup, and the poster will be a melting McDonald's milkshake on a blank, dark blue background reminiscent of an interrogation room. But first, the saga will have to continue in the courtroom as Kitsch fights what could become one of the higher-profile right-to-repair lawsuits. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.